Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships, and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides, and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to thepublicsafetyguru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification, which grants you instant access to our Google Drive, which has all of these resources, including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all-new Discord channel, which allows you to have interaction with me, where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT Tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. Okay, with this lecture, the EMT student or NREMT prepper should have a significant understanding about the characteristics of the following. The anatomy and physiology of the nervous system, common disease processes, that strike the nervous system, such as strokes, seizures, headaches, and altered mental status, and the basic assessment and care of patients that are having neurological emergencies. This would include performing certain tests, such as speech, facial movement, and arm movement, so you could determine if your patient is suffering from a stroke or other neurological emergencies. As with all podcast lectures, we're going to identify the knowledge domains, which is the information the EMT should know and understand to be prepared for their classroom tests as well as the NREMT examination. Here are those knowledge domains. The EMT student should be able to describe the anatomy and physiology and functions of the brain and spinal cord. Additionally, the EMT student should be able to differentiate between the different types of headaches the possible causes of each, and how to distinguish a harmless headache from a potentially life-threatening condition. The EMT should have knowledge of the various ways that blood flow to the brain can be interrupted, which would cause a CVA. The EMT student should be able to discuss the causes, similarities, and differences of an ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, and a transient ischemic attack, otherwise known as a TIA. The EMT student should be able to list the general signs and symptoms of stroke and how those symptoms manifest if the left hemisphere of the brain is affected and if the right hemisphere of the brain is affected. 
lists the three conditions with symptoms that mimic stroke and the assessment techniques EMTs may use to identify them. Define a generalized seizure, partial seizure, and status epilepticus, including how they differ from each other and their effects on the patient. Describe how the different stages of a seizure are characterized and discuss the importance for EMTs to recognize when a seizure is occurring or whether one has already occurred in our patients. The EMT should be able to explain the postictal state and the specific patient care interventions that may be necessary. The EMT should be able to define altered mental status, including possible causes and the patient assessment considerations that apply to each. The EMT should be able to discuss the scene safety considerations when responding to a patient with a neurological emergency. He or she should also be able to explain the special considerations required for pediatric patients who exhibit an altered mental status. These next knowledge domains are specific to the patient assessment. The EMT should be able to explain the primary assessment of a patient who is experiencing a neurological emergency and the necessary interventions that may be required to address all life threats. Additionally, during the history taking of the assessment, the EMT should have a process that varies depending on the nature of the patient's illness. For the secondary assessment, the EMT should be able to explain the assessment for the patient who is experiencing a neurological emergency, as well as being able to utilize a stroke assessment tool based upon your local protocols to identify if a patient is having a stroke. And if the EMT suspects the patient is having a stroke, the EMT should know what needs to be documented during the assessment and reassessment, as well as understanding the importance of notifying advanced life support and the emergency room about the findings in regards to the patient having a possible stroke. The EMT should be able to explain the care, treatment, and transport of patients who are experiencing headaches, stroke, a seizure, or an altered mental status. And last, everything that we just identified, the EMT should understand these special considerations for not just pediatric patients, but for geriatric patients as well. All right, let's get on to this lecture slash podcast. Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death and the leading cause of adult disability in the United States, according to the American Stroke Association. Strokes are common in geriatric patients, and the contributing factors for a stroke include family history and race. Unfortunately, African Americans, Hispanics, and Asians have a higher risk of stroke. Now, treatment for strokes are available. Many hospitals today are certified stroke centers. However, this is the reason why it is so important for a first responder to recognize that a patient is having a stroke, provide the proper treatment in the field, and the rapid transport of those patients to a stroke facility. Time is of the essence with these patients. In regards to the seizure patient, seizures and altered mental status may also occur when there is a disorder in the brain. Seizures may occur as a result of a recent or prior head injury, a brain tumor, a metabolic problem, fever, 
or a genetic disposition. Now, altered mental status is a common presentation in patients with a wide variety of medical problems. However, possible causes do include intoxication, a head injury, hypoxia, stroke, or a metabolic disturbance. And based upon your assessment and findings, treatments will vary. All right, let's now jump into the anatomy and physiology of the neurological system. But remember, your program should have had a detailed lecture during the body systems lecture of the neurological system of the human body. All right, let's get into this. The brain is the body's computer. It controls breathing, speech, and basically everything we do. There are three major parts to the brain. The brain stem, the cerebellum, and the cerebrum. Now the cerebrum is the largest part of the brain. Now the brain stem controls the most basic functions including breathing, blood pressure, swallowing, and pupil constriction. The cerebellum controls muscle and body coordination such as walking, riding, picking something up, or the creative side, playing the piano. The cerebrum is located above the cerebellum and is divided into a right and left hemisphere. Each controls activities on the opposite side of the body. So, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. The right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. This will play a significant role during your stroke assessment. The front of the cerebrum controls emotion and thought. The middle part controls sensation and movement, while the back part processes sight. In most people, speech is controlled on the left side of the brain near the middle of the cerebrum. Now the brain gets its messages through nerves. There are 12 cranial nerves that run directly from the brain to the parts of the head, ears, eyes, nose, and face. The rest of the nerves join in the spinal cord and exit the brain through a large opening in the base of the skull called the forum magnum. At each vertebrae in the neck and back, two nerves branch out. These nerves are called spinal nerves and they carry signals to and from the body. Now we're going to talk a little bit about pathophysiology. Many different disorders may cause brain dysfunction and may affect the patient's level of consciousness, speech, or voluntary muscle control. The brain is the most sensitive to changes in oxygen, glucose, and temperature levels. A significant change in any one of these levels will result in neurological change. A general rule is this. If a problem is caused primarily by disorders in the heart and lungs, the entire brain will be affected. If the primary problem is the brain, only part of the brain is affected. See how that works? All right, now we're gonna talk about the pathophysiologies of various different type of emergencies that you may respond on. The first one will be a headache. A headache is one of the most common complaints you will hear from your patients in terms of pain in the head. Headaches can be a symptom of another condition or it can be a neurological condition on its own. Only a small percentage of headaches are caused by a serious medical condition. Tension headaches, migraines, and sinus headaches are the most common types. These are not life-threatening. Tension headaches are caused by muscle contractions in the head and neck and are attributed to stress. 
the pain is usually described as squeezing, dull, or as an ache. And these usually do not require medical attention. Now migraine headaches, these are thought to be caused by changes in the blood vessel size in the base of the brain. Both adults and children can experience migraines. Women are three times as likely as men to experience migraines. The pain is usually described as pounding, throbbing, or pulsating. Migraines are often associated with nausea and vomiting and may be preceded by visual warning signs such as flashing lights or partial vision loss. Migraine headaches can last for several hours to days. Sinus headaches are caused by pressure that is a result of fluid accumulation in the sinus cavities. Patients may also have cold-like signs and symptoms of nasal congestion, a cough, or possibly a fever. Pre-hospital emergency care is not required. Now, serious conditions that include headache as a symptom are hemorrhagic stroke, which is bleeding in the brain, a brain tumor, or meningitis. You should be concerned if the patient complains of a sudden onset of a severe headache or a sudden onset headache that has associated signs and symptoms. You should suspect a stroke in patients with a severe headache, seizures, and altered mental status. Signs of increased cranial pressure, ICP, include headache, vomiting, altered mental status, and seizures. Increasing intracranial pressure may be caused by a hemorrhagic stroke, tumor, or recent head trauma. Your patient assessment should include asking the patient if he or she has experienced any recent head trauma. When transporting these patients, consider not using the lights and siren as they may cause more discomfort to your patient. All right, we're going to move on to the pathophysiology of stroke now. A stroke is otherwise known as a cerebral vascular accident, CVA. And regardless of how you call it, stroke, CVA, this is an interruption of the blood flow to an area within the brain that results in loss of brain function. Lacking oxygen, brain cells stop functioning and begin to die within minutes. Once brain cells die, not much can be done. Brain cells develop ischemia, the reduction in blood supply that results in inadequate oxygen being supplied to the cells, causing those cells to stop functioning properly. It may take several hours or more for cell death to occur because small trinkles of blood may be keeping ischemic cells alive. With prompt restoration of blood flow, the cells will not die and function can be preserved or restored. Now, there are two different types of stroke. They are an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. An ischemic stroke occurs when blood flow through the cerebral arteries is blocked. In the hemorrhagic stroke, a blood vessel ruptures and the accumulation of blood causes increased intracranial pressure on the brain. We're now going to specifically talk about ischemic strokes. Now these are the most common strokes according to the American Stroke Association, accounting for more than 80% of the strokes that inflict our patients. Remember, this is the stroke where a blood clot stops blood flow to a particular part of the brain. This blockage can be due to a thrombosis where a clot forms at the site of blockage or due to an embolus where the clot forms in a remote area and then travels to the site of the blockage. Symptoms may range from nothing to 
complete paralysis of our patient. Arteriosclerosis in the blood vessels is often the cause of ischemic strokes. This is a disorder in which calcium and cholesterol build up forming plaque inside the walls of blood vessels. This plaque may obstruct blood flow and interfere with the vessel's abilities to dilate. Eventually, it causes complete occlusion of an artery. Even if the blockage in the carotid artery is not complete, small pieces of a clot may embolize deep into the brain and become lodged into smaller branches of blood vessels blocking blood flow. This is the information you need to know on ischemic stroke. We're now going to move to hemorrhagic strokes. And hemorrhagic strokes account for 13% of strokes according to the American Stroke Association. And these are a result of some type of bleeding inside of the brain. Now when the brain is bleeding, blood clots will form, which compresses the brain tissue next to it. This compression prevents oxygenated blood from getting into the area and the brain cells begin to die. Cerebral hemorrhages, unfortunately, are often fatal. People at high risk include those experiencing stress or exertion. People at the highest risk are those who have had high blood pressure or long-term elevated blood pressure that is not treated. With this high blood pressure, blood vessels in the brain weaken. If a vessel ruptures, the bleeding in the brain will increase the pressure inside of the cranium. Now an aneurysm is a swelling or enlargement of the wall of an artery resulting from a defect or weakening of the arterial wall. A symptom may be the sudden onset of a severe headache. When a hemorrhagic stroke occurs in an otherwise healthy young person, it is likely caused by a weakness in the blood vessel called a berry aneurysm. Surgical repair may be possible if care is sought immediately. Now we're going to move to a TIA, aka a transient ischemic attack. A TIA occurs when blood flow to the brain is obstructed due to arterial sclerosis or a small blood clot. The patient will exhibit signs and symptoms of a stroke. When stroke-like symptoms go away on their own in less than 24 hours, this event is known as a TIA. Sometimes some patients call these mini strokes. There is no actual death of tissue when a TIA occurs. Unfortunately, because symptoms of a TIA can last up to 24 hours, you, the EMT, may not be able to differentiate between a stroke and a TIA, and thus you treat all TIAs as a patient is having a stroke and provide prompt treatment and transport to a stroke center. While a TIA is not life-threatening, it may be a warning sign that a more significant stroke may occur in the future. About one-third of patients who have had a TIA will experience a stroke soon after. All patients with a TIA should be evaluated by a physician. Now we're going to discuss the actual signs and symptoms of a stroke so that you can better conduct your assessments for your patients. All right, here we go. Get your pen and paper ready. General signs and symptoms of a stroke include the following. Facial drooping, sudden weakness or numbness in the face, arm, leg, or one side of the body. There can be a total loss of movement and control on the affected side of the body. There can be lack of muscle coordination, otherwise known as ataxia, 
or loss of balance. The patient may exhibit sudden vision loss in one eye, blurred vision, or possibly even doubled vision. The patient can also experience difficulty swallowing and a decreased level of responsiveness. There can also be several speech disorders, and we're going to break those down. The first speech disorder is known as aphasia, which is the difficulty expressing thoughts. There is also expressive aphasia, which is the inability to use the right words. And then last, receptive aphasia, which is difficulty understanding spoken words. Continuing on with our list, the patient could present with slurred speech, a sudden and severe headache, confusion, dizziness, weakness, combativeness, restlessness, tongue deviation, and a coma. Believe it or not, sometimes the patient's signs and symptoms can provide clues to the EMT on what side of the brain the stroke has occurred on. So let's talk about those signs and symptoms as they relate to left hemisphere brain stroke. Stroke in the left cerebral hemisphere may cause aphasia. Remember, aphasia is the inability to produce or understand speech. Strokes that occur on the left hemisphere can possibly cause paralysis of the right side of the body. That is a huge clue for you. All right, we're now going to talk about strokes that occur on the right side of the brain. Strokes that affect the right side of the brain can cause paralysis on the left side of the body. Usually, patients will understand language and be able to speak, but their words may be slurred and hard to understand. Patients may be oblivious to their problems, and this symptom is called neglect. Additionally, patients with a problem affecting the back part of their cerebrum may neglect certain parts of their vision. Neglect and lack of pain cause many patients to delay seeking help. All right, let's talk a little bit about now bleeding in the brain. Patients may have very high blood pressure. The high blood pressure may be the cause of the bleeding. Increasing blood pressure is an important sign as the body must increase the blood pressure to get blood to the brain tissues. Significant drops in blood pressure may occur as a patient condition worsens. If you feel your patient is suffering from a stroke, then you, the EMT, need to continually monitor the patient's blood pressure for changes. This is very important. Okay, before we leave the stroke part of this lecture, we're going to talk about conditions that may mimic a stroke. The first condition is hypoglycemia, which is not enough blood glucose. The next is a postictal state. This is the period following a seizure that lasts between five and 30 minutes, characterized by labored respirations and some degree of altered mental status. And the last one is subdural or epidermal bleeding. This is a collection of blood near the skull that presses on the brain. That is it for strokes, and we're now going to start talking about seizures. But before that, this would be a great place for us to take one of those breaks. A seizure is a neurological episode caused by a surge of electrical activity in the brain. This can take form as a convulsion, which is characterized by generalized uncoordinated muscle activity. Additionally, the patient may suffer from an altered level of consciousness. In the United States alone, it is estimated that 2 to 3 million people have epilepsy, which is the common cause for most seizures. 
Now seizures are classified into basic groups, generalized and partial. There is another word that we sometimes use for partial and that would be focal. So you may hear the term focal motor seizure. Now let's talk a little bit about generalized seizures and these are what we call our tonic-clonic and I'll explain that in a little bit more detail. A tonic-clonic seizure results from abnormal electrical discharges from large areas of the brain and it usually involves both hemispheres. These are typically characterized by unconsciousness and a generalized severe twitching of all the muscles that can last several minutes or longer. In other cases, the seizure may simply be characterized by a brief lapse of consciousness in which the patient seems to stare and not respond to anyone. This type of seizure does not involve any changes in motor activity. This is what we call a petite mal or absent seizure. Okay, we're now going to move on to the partial seizure, which is also known as a focal motor seizure. Say that fast three times. These seizures usually begin in one part of the brain and are classified as simple or complex. Now a simple partial seizure, there is no change in the patient's level of consciousness. Patients may have numbness, weakness, dizziness, visual changes, or unusual smells and taste. They may also cause some twitching or brief paralysis. Now when we refer to complex partial seizures, the patient has an altered mental status and does not interact normally with his or her environment. It is thought the reason that this seizure occurs is because of the abnormal discharges from the temporal lobe of the brain. Now other characteristics of this type of seizure could be lip smacking, eye blinking, and isolated jerking. Patients also may experience unpleasant smells and visual hallucinations, exhibit uncontrollable fear, or perform repetitive physical behavior. Now you may have heard that some people who have a history of seizures will have a aura before they have the seizure. These auras could include visual changes or hallucinogens. In other words, they could see possibly flashing lights, there'd be blind spots in their field of vision, or sometimes they'll see, hear, or smell something that is not actually present. When those people that have a history of seizures get that aura, they recognize the fact that they're about to have a seizure and take steps to minimize their injury, such as sitting or lying down. Now, auras do not occur prior to every seizure and not all patients with a seizure disorder experience an aura. We're now going to talk about generalized seizures. These seizures are characterized by a sudden loss of consciousness followed by that chaotic muscle movement. The patient will also be apneic and hence the reason why we receive these calls as a person not breathing because obviously the apnea will lead to the patient becoming cyanotic. Now, during these seizures, the patient will exhibit bilateral muscle movement characterized by a cycle of muscle rigidity and relaxation usually lasting one to three minutes. The patient exhibits tachycardia, hyperventilation, sweating, and intense salivation. It is not uncommon for these seizures to last three to five minutes. Now, after the seizure concludes, the patient will enter the post-icto phase. This phase is when the patient is unresponsive and slowly regains consciousness and full orientation. Now, when I have my patients in this state, I like to put them in a left lateral position and I position myself behind them for safety as 
they start to come around, they can become violent. I use a non-rebreather mask, but I use it as a blow-by device, giving the patient some supplemental oxygen. Eventually, the patient should regain full consciousness and be ANO times three. Seizures lasting more than five minutes are likely to progress to what we call status epilepticus. Seizures that continue every few minutes without the person regaining consciousness or lasting longer than 30 minutes are referred to status epilepticus. I want to talk about one more seizure called the absent seizure. This was called petite mal back in my day. Now this seizure may last for just a few seconds after which the patient fully recovers with only a brief lapse of memory of the event. So you definitely want to know this definition. Now there are various reasons why people have seizures. Epilepsy is thought to be congenital, but there are disease processes which can put a person into a seizure. Additionally, someone being ill and having a high fever could have a seizure. And this is most common in infants and young children. Seizures can be caused by structural problems in the brain, metabolic or chemical problems in the body, or quite frankly, unknown, which is referred to as idiopathic. Now, epileptic seizures usually can be controlled with medications. The common medications that a doctor may prescribe to a patient is Keppra, Dilantin, Phenobarbital, Tegretol, Depakote, Topamax, and Clonopin. Now, going back to the reasons why people could have seizures, let's talk about the structural cause. Structural cause refers to an abnormal area in the brain. This could be because of a benign or cancerous tumor, an infection that leads to a brain abscess or possible meningitis, or there could be scar tissue from some type of injury. So now let's talk about those seizures that are caused by a metabolic problem. Now, abnormal levels of certain blood chemicals could cause a patient to have a seizure. Hypoglycemia, certain poison, drug overdoses, the sudden withdrawal from alcohol or narcotic drugs, the withdrawal from prescribed medications or actually taking prescribed medications. All of these can cause a person to have a metabolic seizure. As mentioned before, seizures can be caused by a high fever but this is normally in children. This type of seizure is known as a febrile seizure. And while the patient may have the seizure and then appear to be normal by the time you arrive on scene, these patients should still be evaluated by a medical doctor. Let's move on to the importance of recognizing seizures. You must recognize when a seizure is occurring and whether this episode differs from previous ones. Patients may turn cyanotic from a lack of oxygen in the blood. Seizures may prevent the patient from breathing normally. Patients who are diabetic could experience a drop in their glucose levels in the bloodstream due to the seizure activity. And based upon your local protocols, you may have to monitor the blood glucose level and administer glucose to prevent the patient from having other seizures. Unfortunately, the seizure patient could have other problems that are associated with the seizure or caused by the seizure. So when you're conducting your patient assessment, look for injuries due to the fact that the patient may have 
fallen while standing and injured themselves. And last, when someone has a seizure, they can first bite their tongue, not always, but we definitely want to examine their mouth for the simple fact that this can be one of the clues that your patient did have a seizure. And second, they could be incontinent, so take appropriate precautions. Let's talk about the postictal state now. Once a seizure has stopped, the patient's muscles relax, becoming almost flaccid or floppy, and the breathing becomes labored, which you'll see as fast and deep. This breathing pattern helps the body balance the acidity in the bloodstream. As the body returns to normal, the patient's breathing will return to normal. In some cases, postictal could look like a stroke. The patient may have hemiparesis or weakness on one side of the body. Now, for most patients, the postictal state, the patient will appear to be lethargic and confused. As mentioned before, the patient may be combative. You must be prepared for these circumstances, hence the reason why I like to be behind my patient as their left lateral, giving them that blow by oxygen. If the patient's condition does not improve, you should consider other possible underlying conditions, such as hypoglycemia or infection. Before we leave this portion of the lecture, seizures can be mistaken for a syncope. And remember, syncope is a fainting spell. Fainting typically occurs when the patient is standing. Seizures may occur in any position. And fainting is not associated with a postictal state. So just keep that in the back of the mind when you're doing your patient assessment. All right, we're now going to talk about altered mental status. Okay, let's jump into this. Aside from stroke and seizures, the most common type of neurological emergency that you will encounter is a patient with an altered mental status. This could be simply from a patient not thinking clearly or is incapable of being aroused. In some cases, the patient will be unconscious. In others, the patient may be alert but confused. Now, there are some common causes for an altered mental status. They could include hypoglycemia, hypoxemia, intoxication, delirium, drug overdose, unrecognized head injury, brain infection, body temperature abnormality, brain tumor, or an overdose slash poisoning. Now what we're going to do is we're going to discuss each one of those in a little bit more detail. So we're going to start off with hypoglycemia. Patients suffering from hypoglycemia may appear to have signs and symptoms that mimic a stroke and some seizures. In these cases, the patient may have hemiparesis similar to what occurs as a result of a stroke. The principal difference is that a patient who has had a stroke may be alert and attempting to communicate normally, whereas a patient with hypoglycemia almost always has an altered or decreased level of consciousness. Now, patients with hypoglycemia commonly, but not always, take medications that lower their blood glucose level. Patients with hypoglycemia can also experience seizures. The mental status of a patient with hypoglycemia is not likely to improve even after several minutes. I can tell you this based upon my own experiences. Hypoglycemic patients can also appear to be intoxicated. So if you come across that patient who has been in a traffic collision and appears to be intoxicated, don't fall for that. You should consider the patient possibly being hypoglycemic. 
I know I've had several patients this way, and as a matter of fact, law enforcement was quite surprised to learn that the patient was not intoxicated, thus DUI, but was suffering from a hypoglycemic emergency. So don't ever fall for that. Now let's talk a little bit about delirium. Delirium is a symptom and not a disease. It usually presents as a new complaint rather than a long-standing alteration in behavior. It's a temporary state that often has a physical or mental cause. Those causes could be infection, changes in medication, or even hypoxia. It may be reversed with proper treatment. Now, signs and symptoms include confusion and disorientation, disorganized thoughts, inattention, memory loss, striking changes in personality and effect, which could include hallucinations, delusions, and a decreased level of consciousness. The patient may experience rapid alteration between mental states such as lethargy and agitations. Symptoms of delirium may mimic intoxication, drug abuse, or severe psychological disorders such as schizophrenia. Now before we move on to patient assessment, I'd like to conclude that there are other possibilities that a patient may have an altered mental status. It is vitally important to remember this because a patient with an altered mental status may be combative and possibly refuse treatment and transport. Now, don't forget, a patient could have an altered mental status because of an unrecognized head injury. In most cases, a patient who appears to be intoxicated is just that. However, you must consider other problems. Remember, let's go back to the person who looks intoxicated but is really hypoglycemic. Psychological disorders, medication complications are also possible causes. Infections may also cause an altered mental status, particularly those involving the brain or bloodstream. All right, we're now going to move to patient assessment and the considerations you need to make when you believe you have a patient who is having a neurological emergency. As always, we'll break this portion of the podcast down with scene size up, the primary assessment, history taking, secondary assessment, and reassessment. All right, let's talk about scene safety first. In some calls, the dispatcher may receive information about the patient's description and signs and symptoms. When this information is given to you, you might be able to draw upon what type of medical emergency you're responding on. Now, patients with an altered mental status may exhibit a wide range of signs and symptoms and behaviors. The most significant difference between an altered mental status and other emergencies is that your patient cannot tell you reliably what is wrong. Do not be distracted by the seriousness of the situation or by frightened family members. Look first for threats to your safety and follow standard precautions. Consider the need for spinal immobilization based on dispatch information and your assessment of the scene, and if necessary, call for additional resources. Now, at this point, when you are on scene, you need to identify the MOI or the NOI. Look for clues to help you determine that nature of the illness. There are special considerations for a patient with a suspected neurological emergency. Evaluate the environment that your patient is in and look for signs of any potential trauma. See if there's any indications of previous medical conditions or any evidence of a seizure. And last, ask family members when the last time the patient appeared to be normal. Okay, we're now gonna move into the primary assessment. 
as always, remember your first priority is to look for and treat life-threatening conditions. Perform a rapid assessment, and as you approach your patient, remember you're gathering information about the scene, the position that your patient is in, their level of consciousness. This initial impression will help you to determine the severity of the situation. If your patient happens to be seizing, you should be able to tell if that seizure is taking place. Unless you are close by, most seizures will be over by the time you arrive. However, if the patient is still having a seizure, consider status epilepticus. And remember, while you're still in this general impression mode, utilize APU to determine the level of consciousness for your patient. All right, we're gonna move on to the ABCs now of our primary assessment. Remember, stroke patients may have difficulty swallowing and are at risk for choking on their own saliva. Evaluate the airway of an unresponsive patient to make sure it is patent and will remain so. Be prepared to provide suction. Position the patient to prevent aspiration. Check for foreign body obstruction. Assessing the patient's breathing. All patients with an altered mental status, regardless of the cause, should receive high flow oxygen. If you find that you need to ventilate your patient, ventilate your patient at the appropriate rate with the proper volume. Deliver each breath during a period of one second at a rate of 10 to 12 breaths per minute. Do not hyperventilate the patient. Hyperventilation may have serious negative consequences. It overinflates the lungs, which can impair blood return to the right atrium and cause a decrease in cardiac output. It also increases the risk of regurgitation and aspiration. Hyperventilation could also cause severe injury in patients with intracerebral bleeding and increase intracranial pressure, causing cerebral vasoconstriction, which shunts blood and oxygen away from the brain, causing further injury to the brain. All right, let's talk a little bit about circulation. Begin by checking the pulse if the patient is unresponsive. If there is no pulse, begin immediate CPR and attach an AED. If the patient is responsive, determine if the pulse is fast or slow and weak or strong. Evaluate the patient quickly for external bleeding. At this point in time, you should be able to begin to make transport decisions. Establish your priorities based on your assessment of the patient's level of consciousness and ABCs. If you suspect the patient is having a stroke, you should rapidly transport the patient to the appropriate facility. Before we move on any further, this would be a good time for us to take another break before we jump into history taking and secondary assessment. Now I want to talk a little bit about history taking. Remember, history taking is all about investigating the chief complaint. You are Detective EMT. If the patient is unresponsive, gather any history of the present illness from family or bystanders. If no one is around, quickly look for explanations for the altered mental status, such as a stroke, maybe the patient's presenting with hemiparalysis or a one-sided weakness, or seizure, is there evidence of incontinence or biting of the tongue. If the patient is responsive, ask him or her what happened. Evaluate the patient's speech and get a sample history. Remember that time can be critical in a neurological emergency. 
make a special effort to determine the exact time that the patient last appeared to be healthy. Collect or list all medications the patient has taken. Patients who have had a stroke may appear to be unconscious and unable to speak, but they still may be able to hear and understand what is taking place. Try to establish effective communication. Your history should reveal if the patient has had a history of seizures. Find out if this episode differs from previous episodes and what medications the patient is taking. Note medications used to treat a seizure disorder. If the patient does not have a history, a serious condition should be suspected. Alright, we're going to now move on to the secondary assessment. Now, during your physical examination, your assessment should continue with a secondary assessment of the entire body, paying special attention to the system involved. If you suspect your patient is having a stroke, direct your attention to a neurological assessment. Alright, vital signs. Patients with significant intracranial bleeding may have a great deal of pressure in the skull that is compressing the brain. This compression slows the pulse and causes respirations to be erratic. Blood pressure is usually high to compensate for the poor perfusion in the brain. There could also be unequal pupil size and reactivity indicating significant bleeding and pressure on the brain. Now, if the patient has an altered mental status, you should check the glucose level if you have the equipment available. During most active seizures, it is impossible to evaluate vital signs and this should not be your priority. In most cases, vital signs of a patient in a postictal state will be close to normal limits. Now, in regards to the monitoring devices that could be available, use a portable blood glucose monitor to check blood glucose levels. You may also use non-invasive blood pressure methods to monitor blood pressure. As you continue your secondary assessment, you may be required to conduct a stroke assessment. To rapidly identify a stroke in the field, you will need to use a stroke scale. Some jurisdictions have their own stroke scales. For example, in LA County, they utilize a different assessment than the rest of the United States. Now, a stroke scale evaluates the face arms, and speech. And just like I said, here's the difference. The Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale and the Los Angeles Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale are commonly used. To test speech, ask the patient to repeat a simple phrase. To test facial movement, ask the patient to smile, showing his or her teeth. To test arm movement, ask the patient to hold both arms in front of his or her body, palms up toward the sky, with eyes closed and without moving. Okay, before we go any further, I'm gonna let you know, there's gonna actually be a mini podcast about both stroke scales. So there'll be a mini podcast about the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale, as well as the Los Angeles Pre-Hospital Stroke Screening. This should assist you later on when you're prepping for either the test or your national registry. All right, let's now talk about the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale. We're gonna first talk about facial droop. In this, you're gonna ask your patient to show their teeth or smile. Now, a normal response would be both sides of the face move equally and well. An abnormal response is one side of the face does not move as well as the other. Next, we're gonna test for arm drift. Ask the patient to close their eyes and hold both arms out with palms up. Now, in this, 
the normal response will be both arms move the same or neither arm moves. The latter response requires a retest because they may indicate the patient did not understand the instructions. Now for an abnormal response, one arm does not move or one arm drifts down compared with the other side. Now the last thing to be tested will be speech. Ask the patient to say, the sky is blue in Cincinnati, hence where the name came from, Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale. Now a normal response will be, patient uses correct words with no slurring. An abnormal response is the patient slurs words, uses inappropriate words, or is unable to speak. That is the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale. Now we're going to talk about the Los Angeles Pre-Hospital Stroke Screening. Now in the Los Angeles Pre-Hospital Stroke Screening, there is a few boxes that we must check before we move on to the actual test. First, we're asking if the patient is over the age of 45. So the box has yes, unknown, or no. The next will be history of seizures or epilepsy absent. Once again, yes, unknown, or known. Are the symptoms less than 24 hours? Yes, unknown, or no. At baseline, patient is not wheelchair bound or bedridden. Once again, yes, unknown, or known. Blood glucose, is it between 60 and 400? Yes, unknown, known. Now when we go on to test in the Los Angeles test, we're gonna look at facial smile slash grimace. It's either equal, right weak, or left weak, and they indicate a droop. Next will be grip. Is it equal, or is there a weak grip, or a no grip? And then last is arm strength. Does the arm drift down or falls rapidly? And these would be the three things that you would take a look for. Now there's one last test known as the three item stroke severity scale, which is otherwise called LAG. This looks specifically at three items, level of consciousness, arm drift, and gaze. Now in this test, level of consciousness has three items, normal, mild dysfunction, and severe dysfunction, which is considered unconscious. Normal, you score it at zero, mild dysfunction, you score at one, and severe dysfunction, you score at two. Then we test arm drift. Normal function is zero, mild dysfunction is one, and severe dysfunction, otherwise known as flaccid, would be a two. Now under gaze, a normal gaze follows pin finger to left and right sides. This would get a zero. A mild dysfunction would get a one, and a severe dysfunction, a fixed gaze, would get a two. If you add up the score, a four indicates a stroke is likely. Now let's talk about a mnemonic called FAST. If you can't remember the Cincinnati Stroke Assessment, the Los Angeles Pre-Hospital Stroke Screening, or LAG, just remember FAST. We need to look at the patient's facial droop, F, A for arm drift, S for speech, and time the patient last acted normal. Now, last, all patients with an altered mental status should have a Glasgow Coma Scale score calculated, otherwise a GCS. There will be a mini podcast on GCS scoring to help you remember the actual scale. But let's talk about that real quickly. What we determine or measure in the Glasgow Coma Scale is eye-opening, best verbal response, and best motor response. 
Let's talk about eye-opening first. Spontaneous eye-opening gets a four. Responding to your speech is a three. Response to pain is a two. And no response is a one. For best verbal response, the patient will get a five if they are oriented, a four if they're confused or having a confused conversation, a three for using inappropriate words, or a two for incomprehensible sounds, and last, nothing will be a one. Now, best motor response, if they obey your commands, they'll get a six. If they localize pain, a five. If they withdraw from pain, a four. If they have abnormal flexion, it'll be a three. If they have abnormal extension, it'll be a two. And if there is no motor response, they get a one. As one of my old paramedic partners said, he doesn't like this scale because even a rock gets a three. That's just a little EMT humor. All right, now let's talk about the reassessment of these patients. Your reassessment should focus on the patient's ABCs, vital signs, and your interventions provided so far. Patients who have had a stroke can lose their airway or stop breathing without warning, so you need to keep a watchful eye on that. Now, you may have to provide certain interventions, and multiple interventions may be necessary. You may have to utilize airway adjuncts, positive pressure ventilation, or other treatments. If these interventions are not working, try something else. You should also compare baseline information with updated information. As you're transporting your patient, you should notify the receiving facility of your patient's chief complaint and your assessment findings. At this point, local protocols dictate patient destination as well as notification to that destination regarding your patient's status. Now, there are some important factors to remember that you need to record during your patient assessment. One of those facts is, when did the patient last appear to be normal? All of your findings regarding your neurological assessment, and if there was any type of seizure activity, what did that seizure look like? How long did it last? And if there is multiple seizures, and did the patient regain consciousness between those multiple seizures? Last, any interventions that you provided for the patient and the effect those interventions had on your patient. Okay, we're now going to be talking about the specific emergency medical care of these emergencies. Some conditions are easier to identify with treatment options that are readily available. The cause of other neurological emergencies may not always be obvious to you. This may make it difficult for you to provide definitive treatment in the field. In most patients with a suspected stroke, physicians in the emergency department need to determine whether there is bleeding in the brain. The only reliable way to tell is with a CT scan of the head. If there is no bleeding, the patient may be a candidate for blood clot dissolving medications. If bleeding is present, this medication will increase bleeding with disastrous consequences. Some EMS systems designate specific hospitals, typically accredited stroke hospitals, for patients who may be having a stroke. Notify hospital staff as early as possible if you have a stroke alert patient. Only a limited number of treatments are available that are effective if started more than three hours after a stroke began. Once again, notify the hospital regarding the last time the patient was known to be without their current signs and symptoms of a stroke. 
Patients who have had a seizure require definitive evaluation and treatment in the hospital. Usually, supplemental oxygen is strongly advised. Most seizures will not require a significant amount of intervention on your part. For patients who are having a seizure, protect them from harm, maintain a clear airway by suctioning, and provide oxygen as quickly as possible. If there's head or neck trauma suspected, provide spinal immobilization. For patients who continue to have a seizure, as in status epilepticus, suction the airway, provide positive pressure ventilation, transport quickly to the hospital, or rendezvous with ALS if possible. Now I want to specifically talk about the emergency medical care as it relates to headaches. Most headaches are harmless and do not require emergency medical care. You should be concerned if the patient complains of a sudden onset of a severe headache, or the patient complains of a sudden headache with fever, seizures, altered mental status, or following a traumatic event. Now, a little bit about migraines. Always assess the patient for other signs and symptoms that might indicate a more serious condition. Apply high flow oxygen if the patient could tolerate it and give them a darkened and quiet environment. Do not use lights and siren during transport. Now I know we've been talking about stroke and seizures, but I wanna talk specifically about the emergency medical care for strokes. Support the ABCs and provide rapid transport to a stroke center. The patient may require manual airway positioning. Use suction as needed and monitor the patient's oxygen saturation with a pulse ox. Maintain a pulse ox of at least 94%. Now, routine use of oxygen therapy is not recommended unless the patient is experiencing respiratory distress or showing signs of a hypoxia. Remember to protect the patient's extremities as they won't be able to, especially if they're suffering from some type of paralysis. Continue to talk to your patient and inform him or her of what is going on. Remember, despite the fact that they are unable to communicate to you, it does not mean they don't understand. Some stroke patients will require thrombolytic therapy. This therapy utilizes drugs that dissolve blood clots. But there are also methods to mechanically remove a blood clot, which may reverse stroke symptoms and even stop the stroke if given within the first three hours, that's drugs, or six hours for the medical, or I should say mechanical methods. Now, comprehensive stroke centers are able to offer advanced stroke care and in some cases may be able to provide thrombolytic therapy even after the three-hour window for drugs and the six-hour windows for mechanical. Regardless of the time frame, though, in your mind, you should proceed under the assumption that the area of the brain can still be saved. The sooner the treatment is done, the better the patient's prognosis. Spend as little time at the scene as possible. Remember, time is the enemy of the brain in stroke emergencies. If at all possible, transport your patients to a designated stroke center. This is the best case scenario for these patients. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about seizures. The patient may be in a postvictal state upon your arrival. Alternatively, the patient may still be having a seizure. Continue to assess and treat the ABCs. Try to administer oxygen. I prefer blow-by. It is difficult to safely prepare a patient for transport who is having a seizure. When the seizure has been completed or has stopped, assess for trauma, 
utilize spinal mobilization if indicated, and never attempt to restrain a patient who is actively seizing. Not every patient who has had a seizure wants to be transported. It is usually in the patient's best interest to be evaluated by a physician. However, don't be surprised if they don't want to be transported to the hospital. Your goal should be to encourage the patient to see the ER doctor, but if not that doctor, at least their own primary care physician. If the patient continues to refuse treatment and transport, utilize your local protocols for filling out against medical advice forms. As we close off with this lecture, remember, signs and symptoms vary from simple confusion to coma. Regardless of the signs and symptoms, altered mental status is always an emergency that requires immediate attention, even if the cause appears to be intoxication or minor head trauma. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it with this lecture. Remember, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Membership grants exclusive learning content such as member-exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor. Again, thanks for listening and happy EMT.